Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Well, good evening. Good to see you all. It's a joy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. My wife and my children send their greetings. My son is here with me, as David mentioned. Uh, Samuel, who's 17 and working with me on this trip, so it's fun to, for us to have an excuse to travel together. But my wife and my, my three daughters are, are at home, and they send their greetings. Uh, Abby is 15, Isabel is 13, and Claire is 10. So we're in a real fun season as a family and uh, enjoying ourselves uh, running a lot, but, uh, but that's all right. We're having a good time together. So, um, <clears throat> But I'm grateful to be here and grateful for David and his ministry here and uh, some good conversations that we have had through the last uh, couple of years, and I'm, I'm grateful for him. Uh, and I want, to, I want to be able to share God's word with you, but I also want to share my story that happened at, at our church uh, with the hope that, if nothing else, you would be encouraged to see the way that God has, has been at work in our church and that somehow you would find a strange encouragement in, in the way that God's been at work here and the way that God may want to be at work in this church in the future. So I hope that we can find just, if anything, find hope that God wants, is not done with our churches, is not done with us as individuals, and he's continuing at work in us still. So hopefully we can find some hope in that uh, this evening. Have you ever noticed all that you can accomplish in like two years? I mean, think about it. Some people can lose like 50 to 100 pounds of weight in two years if they work hard at it. Some people can go and get a master's degree in two years. Some people can like move three or four times in two years, which I've done and I do not recommend, but it's possible that you can actually do that. There's a lot of things you can do in two years. But here's the problem. When it comes to the work of the church, there's oftentimes not a lot that can be done in two years. So just to give you a little context with the ministry that, ministries that I'm a part of uh, with practical shepherding and then the, the ministry at revitalization at the Mathena Center, is I get to work with a lot of pastors in a lot of different churches. And I get to work with a lot of seminary students and others who are trying to find churches to go pastor and churches who are trying to find pastors. And I've noticed uh, a pattern that pastors will go to a church and the average stay is still, the, the latest stat is the average stay is two to three years for a pastor to stay at one church, two to three years. And so even though there's a lot that we can accomplish in two years in our life in a lot of different ways, there's not much that can get done in the church in the first couple years of a, of a pastor's ministry. So I, I say often that two years is just enough time for that pastor to realize what a mess of a church he just took. And two years is just enough time for that church to realize what a mess of a pastor they just got. And, and at about two years is where you really can dig in and start to get, do, do some real ministry. And this church and the pastor have to figure out, oh, we're stuck with each other and we've got to figure out how to love one another and wrestle through all of those things. The problem is pastors don't realize that's part of getting established in a church. And they go, oh, this is wrong. Something's not right. And they leave in two to three years at a church. So here's the problem with not being able to accomplish a lot in, in two or three years. Pastor after pastor after pastor going to a church hoping to see real progress in two years. And when that real progress does not come, they get discouraged and leave. Then they go to another church and in two years, two to three years, they get discouraged there because they haven't seen what they want to see and they leave and hence we have the pattern that we see in Southern Baptist life so often, and that is that average stay of two to three years for every pastor. The phone call or the email that I get, sadly, all the time now is this. Pastor will contact me and says, I'm getting beat up. Nobody likes my preaching. 
My wife is done and discouraged with this church. And the enemies have come out of the shadows in the church. And some of them were on the pastoral committee, you know, that hired me two years ago. And they say, I'm ready to quit. And I'm ready to resign. Tell me why I shouldn't. Well, sometimes you can try to salvage those situations, but at that moment, many times, there's not much you can do. But you would be amazed at how often I get contacted with that email or that, that particular phone call. And I've concluded, in many cases, the average stay of a pastor for two to three years is one of... Is, arguably the main reason why so many churches are harmed and begin to decline and they just continue to decline and they move to a place that is not healthy and the church doesn't feel like there's anybody leading them and churches just go downhill. And we have close to a thousand Southern Baptist churches closing every single year. That's the reason I was, I was asked to to come help with church revitalization because there is that kind of epidemic in the Southern Baptist life. Close to a thousand churches closing every year. Churches that have sat on corners for even 50, 100, 150 years that were gospel lights at one time in those communities are closing. This is an epidemic unlike we've ever seen in Southern Baptist life in this particular moment in history. And I think we'll look back in history and see that this was a significant moment in our denomination and in the life of our churches. My aim is, I want to present to you tonight a, a different paradigm than what we're seeing. This, the paradigm that, that challenges that notion that somehow a pastor's supposed to just go for two or three years and either gets discouraged and leaves or uses it as a stair step to go to the next bigger church. And it still just perpetuates this statistic of two to three years for the average stay of a, of a pastor. I want to present a different paradigm to you. It's one that, that helps you see that, that two years is just enough time for a pastor to realize the church he's in, what he has to work with, who the people think this pastor is, and they begin to work together. It takes two years a minimum just to start down that road. It's a paradigm that convinces a pastor to go to a church and stay a minimum of five years or he will not go to that church. It's a paradigm that affirms when the adversaries or the enemies or the people who come against the pastor, for whatever reason that is, when those people show who they are, that the pastor doesn't just tuck and run and leave, but he actually stays and tries to figure out what's going on. And why are these people unhappy with me? When times get hard, this par the paradigm I want to present to you is when times get hard, it's actually a sign to stay, not leave the church. And I'm aware that one of the reasons that I'm encouraged by what's happening in this church in different ways is that, that you have a pastor who's stayed longer than two years. And you need to be reminded that that's a gift. It's a gift to have a pastor who's willing to stick it out. I'm sure you've both had moments where he's been ready to leave and you've been ready for him to leave. We all have in, in these moments. And yet he's stuck it out. And guess what? You're still here. And that means you've stuck it out with him. This is a two-way relationship. So I want to encourage you as I'm talking about this, that this church in the last decade have already, has already beat the statistics in that way. And you need to be encouraged by that as you try to think about how to move forward in church health and continuing to see how God wants to move in this church. So I want to advocate for this, this model of this paradigm in, in 1 Corinthians. So take your Bible if you have that. 1 Corinthians, find chapter 16, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I want to remind you, so I'm going to use this as to kind of establish the paradigm 
and it will be kind of a platform for me to be able to share my story with you of what happened at our church. And some of you will be familiar with Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And if you are, you know this church was a mess. This church was a mess. Paul had said a lot to them by this final chapter. And by this final chapter, many people are, are, were tempted to kind of skim the last part of this, aren't we? we? He's talking about his travel plans. He's talking about tying up loose ends with this and that. And we're, we're tempted to think there's not as much valuable there as there is in the meat of the letter. I have to be honest with you, until I preached through 1 Corinthians, which I did two years ago, until I preached through it, I didn't see what I'm about to show you in just plain reading of it. It's one of the wonderful benefits to preach through books of the Bible and to, to see what's there. This golden nugget of truth was found in regard to church life, in regard to a pastor's ministry in a church. And I want to show it to you. Chapter 16, find verse 5. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9 if you'd like to follow along with me. Paul writes, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you and even spread, spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. <clears throat> for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Let me stop there. So what's Paul doing here? He's explaining to the Corinthians of his, of his travel plans and why he hasn't yet come to them. And you know what? If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, this was important for Paul to say because he has said some really hard things all throughout this letter. If I was in the Corinthian church and I heard this letter read to me, I would start to think, Paul doesn't like me and he certainly doesn't want to come see us. But that's not what he's doing. In fact, he's, he's saying the opposite here. He's, he's letting them know, I desire to come, verse 7, he says, I desire to come and hope to stay longer with you. So I want to come see you. But he says there's two reasons why he has to stay where he is. Here's the two reasons. Number one is, his work's not done. Paul stays where he is in Ephesus because his work is not done yet. Look down in verses 8 and 9. He says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. So Paul had plans, but God revealed to him through this divine door of significant ministry that was still in Ephesus, he had to change his plans until it was time for him to leave. Look down at verse 7. At the very end of verse 7, he says, If the Lord permits, I will come to you and stay a while. So Paul is trusting that God has good and sovereign purposes in his life and in his ministry to stay in Ephesus. The work's not done yet. So he says he has to stay until God lets him know the work's done. Here's a second reason he stays. He says, The presence of many adversaries. You know, be assured if the Lord is mightily at work in building his church and his kingdom, the enemy is prowling like a lion looking for someone to devour. That's 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is apparent to Paul in his follow-up phrase. Look down at verse 9 on why he stays. He says, there are many adversaries. It's hard to know if Paul is saying this to say this is one of the reasons the work's not done or simply to, to highlight the presence of, of enemies that are always going to be present when gospel work's being done. It's, it's hard to know why he says this, but regardless, the point is, if a pastor chooses to walk through an open door of significant ministry that God is calling him to, to the place where God wants the gospel, this light to pierce through the darkness, guess what? There will be adversaries waiting for that pastor to go to that church. And the pastors who contact me 18 to 24 months into their ministry, ready to resign, 
is oftentimes because they finally met their perceived adversary in their church. In that open door of ministry that God had called him. And ironically, in many cases, their confrontation with these adversaries, whether inside the church or outside the church or both, the confrontation with these particular adversaries that come against the gospel ministry that they're trying to do tells that pastor it must be time for the next place. But do you see that Paul takes the exact opposite view of this? Look down at verse 9 again. He says, the presence of adversaries in his ministry makes him conclude he must stay longer, not leave. So for Paul, the adversaries, whoever that is, the adversaries in that place of ministry is actually an indicator to him that God's at work and that there's still work that needs to be done. He's got sheep to take care of who would be threatened by the adversaries, and he stays. In a sense, Paul is saying he can't leave because of that. I met my adversaries at our church just a few months into my pastorate at Auburndale Baptist Church. I went there 13 and a half years ago. Uh, it was a very typical dying Southern Baptist church, been around about 80 years. And there were about 30 elderly folks left in the church. It was in financial shambles. The building was falling down around us. And it was probably about two to three years from closing its doors and being one of those thousand churches that closes every year in Southern Baptist life. They hired me at a salary that they could not pay me longer than six months, which I didn't realize until after I got there. So then in the midst of many other things, I'm scrambling to try to figure out how to provide for my family and pick up some side work here and there just to try to make things work. And there were three different efforts to get me fired in the first five years of the church. Three different efforts to get me fired in the first five years. And before I go on, I do want to specify this, that when I say adversaries, that can mean legitimate adversaries in the church. That can mean wolves in sheep's clothing. That can mean unconverted people who the enemy has placed there to try to kill gospel ministry. And sometimes they're members of the church. Sometimes they're leaders in the church. And that is a harsh reality of our churches. But I also want to point out that in this category of adversary, that could also be describing a church member who is very wounded from pastors leaving every two to three years for 40 years. And that being what killed the church. And that adversary is that older member in the church who has no trust in the pastoral office anymore, let alone it be a kid young enough to be their grandkid, which was me when I went there. So let's remember when I say adversary, this is not a pastor against church. As I tell my story, this is not pastor against church. Pastor's good trying to do the work. The church is bad. Please don't hear that. But what happened to me was a mixture of adversaries of the first kind and a mixture of adversaries of the second kind that all came after me. And that's why I dealt with what I did as I look back on it. So just realize that. So often churches that are hostile to the pastor are a bunch of wounded people who have been hurt by pastor over and over and over again. And they don't trust the pastor anymore which makes sense. Three different efforts to get me fired in the first five years. The first one happened three months in. And it was through a staff member that I had inherited at the church. There was a, very, a lot of confusion as far as who had authority in the church. 
And this staff person was the, was the music minister that I inherited, who boasted of having gotten rid of the previous pastor who stayed an amazing 18 months and left. And then I came in after him. The church had had a pastor stay no longer than four years since 1972. So our church was this way, pastor after pastor after pastor coming through and leaving and leaving the church worse off every time each pastor came through. That's a pretty realistic explanation on why there's so many churches that over time just die slowly. I think it, I blame the pastors in many cases for this. That was the situation I inherited. So this music minister I inherited, I went in, I was, I was taught well by my mentor to go in. You preach God's word. You love the people. Don't change a bunch of stuff at the beginning. Just go in and preach and love people. That was my plan. My plan was to try to win all the staff I inherited, the very small staff that was there, to try to win them and, and to not try to clean house or anything like that. So I tried to win this music minister, but he didn't like me from the beginning, it seems. And about two months in, when people started visiting the church for the first time in like a whole decade, I would look up and saw this music minister after the service going and, and seeking out the new visitors. And I'm thinking, oh, good. You know, he's going and he's greeting the new folks. And that's great. Uh, trying to talk with them and be friendly to them. And I watched that for several weeks as visitors started coming, I think, just to check out the new pastor who was there and see what's going on. And come to find out, somebody came and told me what he was doing. He was going to the visitors and saying to them, this pastor is crazy. You do not want to come to this church. You do not want to be here. I'm just warning you now, and you will not want to come back. And he went to all the visitors every time they came and said that to them. Now, I am not a church growth expert. But I'm pretty sure that's not a good way to grow a church, to have your staff person telling the new visitors to leave and never come back. So naturally, as much as I wanted to keep the peace, I had to confront him over this. He did not receive that well and basically declared war on me. And because he felt like he had gotten rid of the previous pastor, he thought that he could get rid of me too. And he had aspirations to want to be the pastor so that was his plan. And what ensued is a, is a major conflict that blew up three months in where he was starting a campaign to try to rally enough church members to call a business meeting and to vote and to get me fired. He had a history of violence. So there was actually people in the church who feared for my physical safety for a time. Most especially my wife feared for my physical safety the most during this time. So I didn't have much of a honeymoon period at the church. Well, it's a longer story, but God, in his grace, uh, provided a, a way to have some leverage with him to where I was able to negotiate him to resign and leave quietly and not harm the church anymore with what was going on. And he agreed to it and he resigned and he left quietly and peacefully. And I assure you, there's a whole much longer story that I don't have time to tell with that. But that is in essence what happened. But here's what was amazing. There's a guy who had come from the seminary, a single man who had come to the, and just, showed up at the church just to check it out, had heard about it about a month prior to this. And this other music minister peacefully resigned. He was graduating from seminary. It was a time to leave. He wanted to pursue other avenues and he resigned and left. This other man had come in who was very musically gifted, was very theologically sound, and he just wanted to serve the church in whatever way he could. And he came in and when this man resigned, this other person just took his role on and we brought him on and he was already there. And he served our church for four wonderful years after that and was such a huge blessing to our church. And he has the same first and last name of the first guy that was there at the church. I can't make that up. It also makes it really interesting when I get calls 
on recommendations for ministry from both of them, on both of them. A committee will call me and say the person's name and I'll have to say, well, I've had a couple of them here. Can you kind of give me an idea who you're talking about? It's interesting for a lot of years. So I got pretty intrigued by what God maybe had in store for us with those kinds of circumstances three months in. The church started to numerically grow, which kind of kept me out of trouble a little bit uh, in the first year or so, even though I was functioning in some ways, I was preaching differently than they had understood what preaching was in the past for the church. But about two and a half years in, I ran into another conflict that almost got me fired again. Um, I took very seriously the responsibility I felt I had as a pastor to spiritually care for the souls of every member in our church. Well, we had about, at that time, about 50 people who were coming on Sunday morning at that time and about 800 members on the roll. And I didn't know what to do with that as somebody who took really seriously caring for members and the souls of members. So I went to the deacons, which was the governing authority body in our church at the time, and just kind of asked the question, say, hey, where do you all know where all these people are? And is there a way we can find them somehow? And it was such a touchy issue with a previous pastor years ago that when I said this, I was verbally threatened by one of the deacons and he shook his finger in my face and he said to me, pastor, your honeymoon's over. And the next month I was on vacation in Minnesota where my wife and I were visiting some of her family and the deacons called a meeting and they had called a meeting with my associate pastor who was there with me at the time, who had come with me to serve with me. And they had called a meeting to basically come up with a plan to get rid of me while I was gone. And if the associate pastor helped them do this, then they said they promised to make him the pastor when I was gone. And I'm in a field in Minnesota on a cow farm up there talking on a cell phone was because out in the middle of the field is the only place I could get a signal. And my associate is telling me what happened. And my associate said no to them, which made me grow tremendously in my trust of him after, after that. And I came home from vacation and I have to acknowledge, I didn't go on vacation a whole lot after that. And what's really funny is like 13 and a half years later, I'm still trying to burn through all the vacation I built up those years that I just didn't leave because I was afraid to after all that happened. So I built up all this vacation time for the course of several years that I'm still now trying to use, which I feel more than comfortable trying to use now, which is nice. The worst firing effort came at year five that almost split the church and just destroyed it. And it was over some leadership issues. It was over who's supposed to lead the church. What are the pastors supposed to do? What are the deacons supposed to do? What are all the different leaders in the church supposed to do? Now, it was over that issue, but there was a different issue going on. That's what everything was blamed on. But what was going on is newer people had slowly come into the church the folks that had been at the church a long time and a few certain people who were legitimate adversaries against me and what seemed to be any kind of gospel ministry had held a stranglehold on the church for a long time, just a few folks. And in year five, it all blew up because there had been enough younger folks come into the church and a few older folks too, but it was predominantly younger, which, which the church didn't have anything of, so it, it was very noticeable. And they, ha- they were the majority. And you, as you all know, in a congregational church, who, has the, who, who the majority is in the church has that authority in the church. And because that power got challenged in our church in an unhelpful way, and generations got pitted against each other in a very unhelpful way. Um, the church almost split over some of the, the leadership adjustments we were make, trying to make. The ringleader for this was one of my deacons. 
And the worst moment was probably when a, when a, a beloved church member died in the church. And then we met in the, they, she was, they were at the funeral home for her visitation. And they called a meeting, this group in the church called a meeting in the back kitchen of the funeral home, you know, where the family's supposed to be able to go and take breaks and eat. They called a meeting with the plan to vote down what I was wanting to try to do in the next business meeting. And after they voted it down, they were going to recruit a bunch of people who were on the membership rolls who did not attend the church anymore. And they were going to come in and vote down my, my presentation to my motion for the leadership change that had been at work for about two or three years. And once they voted that down, they were going to make a motion to remove me as pastor. The night before the vote, I sat down with this one deacon who he and I had been at odds the whole time I was there. And we had a very difficult relationship. I sat down with him and I said to him, I have the votes for this and you know I do. And I believe this is what the Bible teaches and that we need to do this. But we're about to split the church and destroy it by what we're doing and by what you're doing and what I'm doing. And we need to stop. So I said, I will agree to take this off the table. I will not present this as a vote. If you will back off all the people you're rallying to come in and do what you're talking about doing tomorrow. And he agreed. And not only did he agree, he almost seemed a bit thankful and appreciative about that. And so the business meeting came and went and there was no vote. And I'll let you know, this is at year five. And I felt like a complete failure as a pastor that I had spent a lot of years trying to work, take us a direction that I felt the Bible taught. It was different than what our church was used to. But I was trying to move slowly, trying to teach and be patient. And this didn't happen. And I felt like a complete failure. And I almost left, almost left at, at five years. And I didn't leave. And so I get asked a lot why I didn't leave. I mean, but you can imagine by this time I was done. My wife was done. We were just so discouraged and hurt. And that, that conflict in year five, there were some close friends that had even come to the church that had come supportive at one time of what I was trying to do at the church who ended up turning on my wife and I and they left the church through this. 25% of the congregation left in year five at when all the smoke cleared, 25% of the congregation had left. And I was about to leave. But I'm, there's two reasons I stayed. Number one, I have to tell you, I had this small, morbid curiosity of what in the world could happen next. And I was kind of curious on what might happen if I stayed anymore. But there's a second, even more important reason. And it's found in Hebrews 13, 17 which says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And that defines what a pastor's role is. And all the things that confuse it and, and muddle it up, a pastor's call to care for souls in a way that he will give an account to the chief shepherd. And I have to say, the only thing that kept me at the church is I was haunted by Hebrews 13, 17. It wasn't, oh, I, I want to obey this. No, I was haunted. I knew I was called to be the pastor of this church. And God taught me a lesson, maybe the, one of the most important lessons I've ever learned. Hebrews 13, 17 also applies to the souls under my care who don't like me very much not just the ones that like me, not just the ones that receive my care, but the ones who don't. Because oftentimes the ones that don't is, has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the broken trust of pastor after pastor after pastor that harmed them probably before I was born, let alone before I went to that church. So I stayed. And you know what? Something surprising happened. Some of them stayed too. Even the ringleader of year five that I had that momentous meeting with, he stayed. And something strange happened in year six. The ship just turned. 
with whoever was left after when the smoke cleared, we moved forward with whatever we had. By this time, by the way, the bank account had hit zero. There was no money in the bank. And I went week to week wondering if I was even going to get paid anything. But the ship turned in year six and things totally changed. God sent that next year some of the most significant people that's ever been in our church that next year. There was a unity that started forming between the older generation and the younger generation that only God could do. You know what happened too is after that, I pulled that vote off the table and I was so discouraged by that, felt like a failure. I spent the next nine months and I went to every person's home that was in objection to it and sat down with them and said, hey, please tell me what's, what's going on. What's your objection over this? It seems clear in the Bible, but I know it's different. Is that, what are you struggling with with this? And I walked through that with every single one of them for nine months. In nine months, the same motion was put on the floor at a business meeting. And it passed unanimously. Not one no vote. The vote that was going to split the church nine months before was actually voted on unanimously in favor. And so God just seemed to just shift everything from that moment on, and we started to see life just coming back into the church. So five years not only marks those three firings I had to try to survive, but it also marks where the ship just turned. So what I want to share with you in just my remaining time is I want to share with you five lessons I learned. Five lessons I learned after five years. So again, my, my original paradigm, remember, is this, that when it gets hard at two or three years, the pastor needs to stay, not leave. And I think you have to stay a minimum of five years before you can even begin to turn a church around. Because I've found that's not just true in my story. It's true in so many other churches. So five lessons. The first one is this. The epiphany of patience. I learned the epiphany of patience. I have to tell you, in the early years, I thought I was the one that was being patient. You know, I was the young pastor. Everybody's coming against me. And I'm still just, you know, I'm hanging in there. And I'm being patient. And I'm not trying to change a bunch of stuff that they don't want changed. And people just aren't appreciating, you know, what I'm doing. They don't understand what I'm trying to do. If you would ask me in the first five years, that was my answer. I was the one being patient with these really difficult people. You know what happened after year five? Year six and seven and eight, I started realizing these people are actually being patient with me. It was actually the other way around, I found. A lesson I would not have learned had I left at year five. That would have been a tragic lesson to not learn. Because here's what I learned. I learned these longtime faithful saints who had been wounded by previous pastors, they were being patient with some kid who came in to want to be the pastor and had a lot of ideas and wanted to see things happen, who's young enough to be their grandkid. And somehow I'm going to be different than everybody else. And yet these people hung in there. They hung in there as I was trying to figure out how in the world to preach. They were hanging in there with all my mistakes and failures and rookie mistakes that I made. Yeah, when I look back on that time, there was actually a lot of people being patient with me. I would say even more patient than I was being with them. And so I learned the epiphany of patience. Quick story on that. There's an, a, an 85, she's 88 now, this dear widow in the church. She was the only one who had come to me in the first two years and tell me not only did she dislike my preaching, but she told me exactly why she didn't like my preaching. She was the only one who would come tell me that. You know, everybody else, you would hear the grumbling, but no one would actually come to you and say it. This woman was bold enough to come and tell me exactly what she did not like about my preaching. And I just want you to know, I just dismissed what she said. You know, she just, she just didn't understand what I was trying to do. 
And she had in her mind from previous pastors, you know, what, what, a, what preaching is supposed to be. And we just didn't agree on it. And so I dismissed her. The next eight years, I wrestled through just trying to grow in my preaching and trying to wrestle through these different things, <clears throat> seeking counsel and help and all kinds of things. Well, I, I hit places where I was very displeased with where I was in preaching and started just pushing myself in other areas and other ways to try to engage more and other things. Eight years later, like at the 10-year mark, I had this moment where I realized and by the way, this is a point where I was really feeling just encouraged in where I was in my preaching. It took a decade to get there for me. And all of a sudden I woke up and realized that I had changed exactly what that woman told me I should have changed eight years before. And just so you know, she loves when I tell that story, just so you know. <laughs> and man, she's a dear woman to me. We have a, a deeply a close relationship. Um, she was patient with me. She told me what, what I needed to grow in. I dismissed her. And she sat there for another eight years and watched me stumble and bumble over myself until I did exactly what she told me to do. That is a sweet and patient woman. And there's many stories like that. I learned the epiphany of patience and I would not have learned it had I left at year five. Lesson number two. The sweetness of tough love. The sweetness of tough love. You know, if you asked any pastor, they would, they would ignorantly say, yeah, I, I want everybody to like instantly receive my ministry, you know, wholeheartedly and love everything that I do. I mean, if a pastor really spoke out of his heart, that's what he would say he wants. One, that's not realistic. And two, I don't think it's helpful for pastors. We don't want everybody to instantly receive our ministry. We're not going to grow if, if that happens. We're not going to learn how to reach people and be pushed to know how to do that. So I have learned that to have host, mem church members hostile to you, not receive you, fight against your care that you make effort to, and it forces you as a pastor to pursue them in love. It is so much sweeter relationship when you win them when you come to realize that they actually weren't against you, they just didn't trust you. Because trust has to be earned. And trust is not earned by giving a title and a salary. Trust is earned in the relational aspect of two people. I want you to know I have some incredibly supportive people in my church now, which I'm grateful for. People who have come and been 100% behind me from the day they've come. You know what the sweetest relationships are to me? It's not those people. It's the, it's the widow I just told you about. It's the guy who was the ringleader at year five that we almost split the church. He's still there. And he's not only still there, he still serves as one of my deacons, a faithful deacon in his, in his upper 80s. And he greets me with a smile and a hug every single morning, I, Sunday morning, when I see him. And I have to tell you, it's hard to put into words what that's like to experience that every Sunday with this man who came after me like he did. And we were at odds like we were. And God totally redeemed our relationship. No, that, that's a sweeter experience for me on Sunday than when I'm greeted by the person who's been 100% supportive from day one. There is a sweetness when it's tough to love somebody and we got to fight to figure out how to love each other. And when you win each other in that way, it's a very sweet lesson that I learned there. Number three, the discerning perspective of scars. God uses the worst moments in a pastor's ministry to bring a gratefulness and a unique perspective in a pastor's ministry after that when you look back on those experiences. So because of these trials I've experienced in the early years of my church, I have a perspective on our church now that the couple who just came two years ago has no idea about. They can hear the stories. and I mean, they hear the stories and they experience our church now and they're thinking, no way. Like this has to be embellished. 
that this did not happen at this church. Because there's such a sweet spirit of unity in our church now that did not exist then. And they hear these stories and they think, no way. There is a discerning perspective that comes with scars in a pastor's life and in the wounded church members that he cares for. So at one time, so we eventually tried to make some ground and on the massive membership list, we had 800 members and 30, 50 people coming. And the church, through a course of many years, tried to find all those members. And there was a time where we voted um, to remove hundreds of them because they were either dead or had joined another church or for whatever reason, hadn't seen them in the church in a decade, whatever it was. I have a different perspective when the young seminarian comes to the church and gets a little bit out of shape because there's like 10 or 12 people who are members who don't come to church as much as he wished they did. He wasn't there at all for when I was threatened by the deacon by just bringing it up at year two. He wasn't there when we spent years trying to just figure out for the sake of caring for souls where everybody is. There is a discernment that comes through the scars of our life, our church life. That's true for the pastor and that's true for church members. And I hope that resonates with you even tonight. Think of the relationships that were once maybe difficult in the church for you that have been reconciled or you've walked through some painful things as church members and you grow closer through that. There's a discernment that comes from the scars that others don't have if they don't have the scars. Number four, the inevitability of suffering. I learned... that pastoring an established church in all its unique baggage is hard. And it's going to cost suffering. It's going to cost suffering in the pastor. It's going to cost suffering in the church members. But suffering's inevitable. It's part of God's plan. It's what makes us cling to Christ and fight somehow to try to get along. And fight somehow to see the gospel light come out in this church into the community. There is the inevitability of suffering. So I tell guys who want to go be pastors, if they think they're going to be the rare exception where they don't suffer very much as a pastor and it's not going to be hard, they just need to go do something else. It's going to be hard. Why? Because the pastor's a broken sinner and the pastor's going to be taking a church that's full of broken sinners and have probably been wounded by other pastors. The suffering is inevitable. We have to just embrace it and know that God has kind and good purposes in it. That's true in church life, but you know what? That's true in your own life. As many of you suffer in different ways in your own life, God always has purposes. Suffering is inevitable because God makes us more like Jesus through those sufferings. Last one, number five. I learned the steadfastness of the chief shepherd. If the chief shepherd never abandons his sheep, the chief shepherd will never abandon his under shepherds who care for the sheep. So guess what that means? God, the chief shepherd does not abandon your pastor and your leaders, and he does not abandon you as a congregation. Wherever you find yourself tonight as a church, whatever you're encouraged by and whatever you're discouraged by, whatever the things you want to rejoice in as a church or the things you want to see you in grow in better health, whatever those things are. I was reminded when I went through all of that, the chief shepherd, it's his church. He will do with it what he wants. And I want to remind us to let, let's evaluate the health of our church on the way God evaluates it. Because I have a concern in Southern Baptist life that so often success and health is judged by numbers. And I don't believe that's necessarily the case. Numbers can show God is at work. Numbers can show growth, both spiritually and numerically, is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But please also look for the ways that God is blessing your church in a way maybe it won't look as much like everybody says it's supposed to look like. So just so you know, we have about 90 members at our church. 
but they're a mix of old and young, black, white, brown. The average age is 35 years old in our church. One of the most significant ministries that we are launching into as a small church is reaching out to refugees that are all over South Louisville where we, we are. We have an annual budget of $135,000 a year. So if numbers and money is the determination of success in a church, then we're a big fat failure as a church. But I assure you, if you came and experienced our church, you would see a lot of life. And it's life that we want to see in the church. It's spiritual life that only God does. So let's challenge ourselves to push. I want to challenge you to push yourself as a church to grow and to align yourself as much as possible what the Bible says you are to be as a church. Go seek to save the lost and grow numerically as a church. Go so you see old and young and black and white and all kinds in this church. But let's evaluate our churches in the way God does. And he evaluates it on the basis of spiritual life. And the foundation of that is how much each of you zealously follow Jesus and love each other and receive his word and tell others about it. So as I close, I just want to remind you, the chief shepherd's with you. I learned that in those early years. I would have been ruined without learning that lesson because those early years were too painful. But the chief shepherd was with me then. He was in control and with our church, protecting them from me in a lot of ways. And he's still with us. And guess what? The chief shepherd is with you all as a church. He never abandons his sheep. And he ever abandons his under-shepherds who care for the sheep. So may you take hope and comfort in that. And to know that whatever redemption and health that comes from this church from this moment on is God's doing and he'll do it for his glory. And you get to be a part of the ride as it happens. But I would encourage you to embrace it. Take risks. Follow your leaders as they seek to follow God. And see what God might do from this moment on. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.